Hi, everyone, and welcome to Homecoming, a podcast that features the diverse stories, insights, and experiences of people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and thanks so much for listening to this new episode. This is the last episode of a three-part series that I'm recording with three different community and multicultural office or CAMD scholars at Phillips Academy, a boarding high school in Massachusetts. And these scholars who are usually seniors are chosen each year by a panel from the CAMD office at Andover to pursue independent research projects during the summer related to diversity and multiculturalism. And these students work closely with their faculty advisor and also write a research paper and make a presentation to the Andover community during the school year. And this past year, there were six CAMD scholars who researched topics from minority-focused cast and television to Asian representation in visual media to the impact of stereotypes and stress on the academic performance of low-income Black and Latinx students. And in this third episode of the series, I'm here with Karen Sun, a 2019-2020 CAMD scholar whose research project titled A Devil's Advocate to God's Advocates, Religious Language in American Presidential Campaigns, explores religion in 21st century American presidential politics and the language it manifests in on the campaign trail. Karen, thank you so much for coming out to Homecoming. How are you today? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for inviting me, Angelina. It is also just so good to see you again. Yeah, I feel like honestly. it's been way too long. And <laughs> I just yes. miss you. Of course, I miss you too. So Karen, do you want to first introduce yourself and you can talk about where you're from, where you call home, your racial ethnic identity, what activities slash orgs you're a part of at Andover and anything else you want the homecoming listeners to know about you. Definitely. So um, as Angelina said, my name is Karen Sun. I grew up in a small town outside of Houston, Texas called Katy. Um, I am there right now in quarantine. Um, but I went to school or am going to school technically um, at Andover. And I've been there since I was a 10th grader. Uh, so I identify as Chinese American or Chinese and American. I haven't completely settled on which um, combination of labels I feel most comfortable with. But both my parents immigrated here from China to come to college and they met, moved to Texas and here we are with me and my brother. Um, I'm currently a senior and I'm going to be heading on to UVA next year for my first year of college. And as Angelina alluded to earlier, uh, my greatest academic passion is religious studies. I absolutely am obsessed with it. I will read about it. I will talk about it all day. You literally have to stop me because I will just go on and on and on until like the sun has set. <laughs> um, but hopefully that won't happen today. Um, although I am very excited to spend an hour talking about religion. Nice. Yeah, thank you, Karen. So just to give the listeners some context, so you and I, we go back, we were both new lowers at Andover. Way back. Yep, way back. We were in the same dorm. Um, you were the cluster co-president of Pinole, which is for non-Andover people there. It's one of um, Andover's residential neighborhoods. I and succeeded in Yep, we were, both, we were both cluster co-presidents. 
Um, so we've got some special connections. And yeah. I, when I heard last year that you had gotten into the CAMD Scholar program, I was super excited. But I was even more excited when I heard that I could actually go to your presentation yeah. since it was May 8th. And so it was virtual. And so like during your presentation, you were so eloquent and prepared and it was like clear that you you knew what you were talking about and it definitely made me think a lot deeper about the topics you were you were talking about and how presidential candidates use this religious language so let's get into your presentation and your research so can you first just tell the listeners what your research was about and what you discovered and sort of a summary because i know you you definitely covered a lot and we'll be talking more about it later on yeah, definitely. So um, the biggest broad strokes I can paint of my research was essentially kind of a deep dive into the way that 21st century American presidential candidates use religion, religious narratives, and religious language in their campaign speeches in order to appeal to the broader American community. Um, I then looked at the types of religious language that they used very quickly into my research, I started realizing that you can't categorize religious language onto one big group. And so I started making these separate classifications of religious language, um, reading like hundreds and hundreds of campaign speeches. I think I went through like, read like 600 campaign speeches. It was crazy. I like was about to scoop out my brain by the end of the research process, but, um, I then looked at the types of religious language each demographic used, and um, I looked at their rates, and then I contextualized that with a lot more um, uh, like critical race theory, um, like the history of religion in America, and kind of doing a deep dive on the role that, Amer uh, that religion still plays in our American politics today. And I think that's especially important, um, given that the very first thing in our Bill of Rights is the establishment of the separation of church and state. But so we often take that as a given and we don't really and truly interrogate the role that religion plays in our politics. And I think presidential campaign speeches were like this perfect vehicle in order for me to like really look at the way that religion affects the way that people engage with politics and people are appealed to. Nice. And um, can you also talk about how you came up with this idea in the first place? Like, I know you're a re religion like powerhouse, but um, yeah, like how slash when did you sort of come up with this idea and why did you want to pursue the CAMD scholar program in the first place? Yeah, definitely. So actually, when I went to Andover as a lower, I had no idea of like what this program was. And then I attended the, the very first CAMD presentation of the year. And I was just like, absolutely hooked. I was like, this is so cool. Like for the very first time I was watching people like close to my age, not just learn through uh, like classes and through teachers, but like actively create their own research. So it wasn't just like, it was the very first time that I realized that like somebody my age could not only absorb information but also create their own so I was like absolutely fascinated by this program and like from that point I was like I know this is something I wanted to go for as for the topic um obviously I love the topic of religion I got hooked on it I got really obsessed with it 
my 11th grade year and I took a class at Andover called Religion in America by my favorite teacher Mr. Prescott there and the entire course is essentially about like the role of religion in America and how that has kind of molded into the American identity since and while I was taking the class we had a guest speaker at our school called Reza Aslan and he is a religious scholar and he said something that really, really stuck with me during our all school meeting, which was that religion is a language. It's not just um, like Christianity, Christianity or Judaism or Islam. It's something that we use in our words in order to communicate something that is very difficult to conceptualize. That's why when we talk about the war on terror, we don't say it's an international geopolitical um, like war between groups that are like very much rooted in like a lot of like contradictory history and colonialization and imperialization. We don't say that. We say it's a war between good and evil. It's because religion and religious language is primarily useful in kind of packaging information into a way that really resonates with the average um, like person, not just American, but like we all do it. It's something that is not unique to America. And so when I really started thinking of religion as a language, I think all these things started falling together, um, like the intersections between like religion and politics and then religion and language. It kind of just naturally formed this topic that like uh, was incredibly um, timely because we're currently going through the 2020 election. And so it gave me a lot of resources to look through. Um, I looked through a lot of 2020 candidates. Um, so like that entire process and just like the perfect matching of events kind of gave birth to this topic that I really, really love to research. And why did you specifically choose presidential candidate speeches versus just Congress people or like mayor speeches? Like why presidential candidates specifically? I was really attracted to presidential campaigns because they were unique in the sense that they had to appeal to the entire country. So if I were to look at congressional speeches, it would be very tailored to the community that they're trying to appeal to. So for example, a like a congressional race in New York City is going to look very, very different than a congressional race in like Montana. So the scope of the American presidential race means that it has to appeal on a national scale, which means that the language that they're using isn't going to be something that is rooted in like some sort of localized history, but rather on a national history. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely thought your presentation was super cool and very unique because I feel like it just put together these thoughts and ideas that I've been sort of, I, 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 I like noticed that presidential candidates talk about religion and use religious language and rhetoric, but it, it never really like clicked that this was like occurring so often. So very cool that you were doing it. And I'm super glad that you did. Um, can you talk about your research that you did last summer? So what did your research consist of? And sort of out of all of the resources you drew from, which of them were particularly formative or mind-blowing? Um, that's a really good question. So I think 
my research can be categorized into two main processes. The first of which was like academic research. This had to do a lot with me reading journal articles, reading books, um, reading like theological texts. So like a very average uh, research paper that you might write in like high school or college but I didn't just want to be like absorbing information again I also wanted to be like do my own study so the second part of my research was an independent study in which I read a ton of campaign speeches from a ton of candidates I collected data um based on like how much religious language they used, what types of religious language they use. And then I looked at their rates and I compared the rates at which different demographics of candidates use certain types of religious language. So this kind of was the bulk of my research process. At least it was the one that took up the most time. Um, but it also created a lot of results that I don't think I would have been able to find if I was just like looking through journal articles that already existed, um, which was really, really fun to do, especially given that like, I think most of the academic processes I've done is a lot of like either self-reflection or a lot of reading. So it was really, really cool to like actually create my own like methodology of a study and carry it through. Um, as for the most formidable or most mind-blowing reading, I've done, it was, um, I can't remember which book it was pulled from, but it was a book written by Marseille Eliot, who is a very, very famous religious scholar and theologian um, in the 1900s. And uh, it essentially tries to describe the religious experience, not something that is like unique to a certain type of religion, but how certain qualities in the world give birth to religious behavior. And so he talks about um, like the difference between the secular and the sacred. And he kind of describes um, the sacred as, and the profane, as he says, as existing on separate like layers of existence in a way. Um, and the way that we are able to contextualize the profane and the secular is when we see it as embodying something sacred and then we then orient our understanding of the profane around that thing that we consider as sacred and then this was like super abstract and super weird to me at first mm -hmm. and I I can't even completely explain it because it's like it's still really really it's pretty dense material but um the best way I can contextualize it with campaign speeches is like Bernie Sanders can read his entire healthcare bill and it'll literally mean absolutely nothing to me. Like the language is like, like very technical. The policy is like very detailed. So if he reads the entire thing, I won't be able to understand like what he's trying to do here. But if before he says it, he says healthcare is a human right. And then he reads his healthcare speech. I'm able to orient the rest of that bill around the statement that healthcare is a human right and that will help me better contextualize what the healthcare bill is about. So with this in mind, the conclusion you can draw from this is that religious language doesn't just play like an a, a isn't just a way that we appeal to different audiences. It's literally the axis of the axis of 
which we orient the rest of their policy ideas around. So when they make a religious claim, when they use religious language, it becomes a fixed point and a filter through which we are able to understand everything else that they're saying. So not only is religious language useful, religious language is absolutely necessary in a politician's ability to appeal to an audience. So like the um, reading of like very old, very dense and abstract theology and then being able to apply that to like religious campaigns and religious speeches, something that is very familiar to me um, was a really interesting way to like look at something familiar in a very different way. And one thing that you talked about in your presentation um, was that you found that when these politicians were referring to this God, it wasn't necessarily an actual religious figure. Like it wasn't necessarily like the Protestant God that everyone imagines. Like it was an American God. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that a little bit and what you what you sort of discovered and found surrounding the American God? Yeah, so um, this idea comes from a very famous essay called Civil Religion, written by Robert Bella in the 1960s. So he basically coins this term civil religion as uh, a group of symbols that is unique to America that has a strong Protestant background, but it's something that is like centered on America itself. So um, it's the abstraction of religious behavior away from like a specific church and towards the state itself. So when John F. Kennedy is saying, John F. Kennedy, who was Catholic, um, says, God bless America, he's not referring to the Catholic God. And when Ted Cruz says our rights come from God Almighty, he's not referring to the Protestant God. They're referring to the American God. And so what this does is it kind of makes, again, it makes religious language a necessity in American uh, campaign speeches. But it also means that like a Catholic person can say God bless America and not get ostracized in America, like at least in the 1960s. Um, now I feel like Catholicism has been a little bit more integrated into um, the American religious demographic, but it's just something that is interesting because it forms a unique American identity, even though it is rooted in something that is like pretty exclusive. And also, maybe it's just like the social pressure, but I'm just sort of trying to imagine what this American God manifests itself as, like, or looks like. Did you find anything about how race intersects with this American God? Um, kind of. I was actually, I was thinking about this a lot during my research. Um, the place that I kind of ended with was, like, pretty inconclusive, so I didn't end up writing about it a lot, but I think there isn't as much a tendency to impose a race on this American God as I think I expected there to be. Um, like when Barack Obama says, like, God bless America, he might be referring to a black God or a white God. When, um, like, black churches say God bless America, they could be referring to a black God. Um, Ted Cruz definitely is not referring to a black God. When he's <laughs> 
America. So I don't think there is like a conscious will to impose any sort of race on this American god, but I think it's something more like flexible that um, is leveraged in a case by case basis. I know that's a really unsatisfying answer, but I don't think um, like I can say that the American god is like a white god, for example. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's just so difficult to like imagine this sort of god without imposing what it they look like, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's like a little bit easier to think of God as like this abstract um concept more so than like a figure like Jesus Christ. Like Mm -hmm. you see a lot of um, like debates about like Jesus's um, like race, which makes sense because he had been very like whiteified, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though <laughs> he was most likely black. So like because Jesus was an actual historical figure, like I think that's um, the like race debate around Jesus Christ is um, it's it's more prevalent. But because God, especially to a lot of religious people, they won't say God is like a figure. Rather, God is something that is like within all of us. And so um, the more, I think the more you get into the religious community or like the very devoutly religious community, um, the more they'll say that it is abstract. Um, And so I do think that like takes away a little bit from the desire to like, make God into a certain race. Awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're we're barely into this episode. We're already getting to the good stuff. <laughs> good to hear. Oh my God. I I literally will talk about this all day. <laughs> and you know that. <laughs> so next question. What about people like Mitt Romney, who is not Protestant, who identifies as Mormon? Like how do they sort of reconcile this American God with their own religious figures? Yeah. So um, I think two part answer to that. The first thing is Mitt Romney can be in the political sphere and be Mormon because he is a straight white male. I just like want to make that statement. Um, One of the biggest discoveries I had with my own like personal data collection, my own personal research is that People and candidates who are marginalized in any capacity, so if you weren't white, if you weren't male, if you um, weren't straight, all had like crazy high rates of religious language, specifically a type of religious language that I called affirmations of personal faith. So um, this type of language is any single time a candidate would refer to their own religious background or like their connections to the religious community. So like. Barack Obama would always allude to like how he used to work it for churches in Chicago or um, Elizabeth Warren would say that she was a Sunday school teacher um so or like Pete Buttigieg he cites scripture a lot it's because they're trying to show off how religious they are whereas um somebody like Mitt Romney or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden who aren't Protestant, and they're able to be not Protestant because their morality and their Americanness is already affirmed by their white, straight male identity, and they don't need to do so 
they don't need to like make up for that by being Protestant or being so overtly Protestant. Um, so first off, Mitt Romney's uh, Mormon faith is compatible or like less incompatible with politics because he's a straight white male. And um, his Mormonism really was like a huge like sticking point in his campaign. Like people would criticize him all the time for being Mormon. It was like a really big deal. People were scared that he was going to make America less American because he was Mormon, even though Mormonism was born in America. So it just like the rhetoric surrounding his faith during the 2012 presidential campaign um, really goes to show how we associate Protestantism with Americanism. And anything that strays away from that, it's considered as foreign. Um, and so that was a really huge battle he had to fight. And he did so by um, adopting a lot of the same techniques that JFK utilized during his uh, 1960 presidential bid, um, which is basically saying, like, I don't vote based on, like, my, like, religious beliefs. Like, JFK was like, I don't vote in favor of the Pope. I vote in favor of America. Um, and so that was kind of the same thing that uh, Mitt Romney really pushed during his campaign. Yeah, so like you said, I, I'm starting to notice that Americans or, well, I'm, I'm just going to say America as just like this generalization because I'm not exactly sure which groups of people I'm referring to, but... Why are people so caught up with this idea of like our politicians need to be Protestant, like they need to show this off? And like, why is this idea of Protestantism basically equal to Americanism? Yeah. So, for this, to answer this question, we have to go back to like the six, the 1500s. Okay. All right. Um, the very first wave of colonization that came to America was Catholic. Um, and then the second wave was English, which was like Puritans. So when you think of the like Thanksgiving, we are talking, we like celebrate like Native Americans and turkeys and pilgrims, right? Like these pilgrims, the word pilgrim is a religious term. Um, it comes from, it, it essentially means like a person making a spiritual journey, which is, what the pilgrims were, they were Puritans escaping religious persecution in England from the Church of England. Um, and the, the justification that they kind of used in order to colonize this land is rooted in the Bible. So the second book in the Bible is the book of Exodus, which essentially tells the story of the Israelites being religiously persecuted in Egypt, um, God essentially freeing them, and then God saying, I have given you this promised land for you to go and colonize and there are natives there yes but this is a land that i have promised to you so therefore not only do you have the right to like wipe out the native population but you have the moral obligation to do so and then occupy their land so this was the story that the puritans were telling themselves as they were coming to america and so the concept they have of america is one that is very rooted in a Protestant like image. It is a Protestant God giving them this promised land for them to occupy as they escape religious persecution in the old land. 
Um, and so the conception that the founders of this country, the quote unquote colonized founders of this country had is very much rooted in Protestantism. So one of the arguments I made in my presentation is not only is the colonization of America driven by Protestantism, but rather the very concept of America is rooted in this biblical story. And so this is like really, really, really evident when we think about the way that we talk about America. Um, the Manifest Destiny was essentially this movement where people were like, we are divinely given this ability and divinely obligated to settle out west. And so the concept of America is like rooted into like this Protestant tradition. And then going back to like the Catholic settlements and Catholic colonization in America, um, very quickly, these two different religious groups started fighting. Um, so Protestants and Catholics, like Protestants from England and then Catholics from Spain would get into these fights. And so there grew like a really big like anti-Catholicism sentiment in America, um, which was only heightened when Irish immigrants were coming to America to like escape starvation after the potato famine. And when you look at a lot of like political cartoons in the 1900s, it's very much rooted in this fear that like Catholics were going to come and like take over like the American Protestant government. And so um, even when you're looking at the establishment of religious freedom in America, it was driven a lot by like Protestant angst. Um, and so uh, like when you look at implicit bias testing in America, like Americans associate Protestantism with morality and Protestantism with Americanness. And this is all rooted in like a very, very long history, but also like something that is like very tangible in our everyday lives. Um, I watch a lot of crime shows, um, which has been really, really terrible for me during quarantine because I just watch Criminal Minds every single day now. But I hear a lot of people saying, wow, this person couldn't have committed this crime because they're like church going people, like they're good. They don't say that this person is moral. They say that this person is moral by saying that this person is Christian, that they go to services every single Sunday. And so like in the American psyche, there is this association with going to church and being Protestant with being a good human and therefore being a good American. Wow. Thank you, Karen, for that history <laughs> lesson. <laughs> that was a really long rant. No, that was, that was good. Yeah. Like people, people need to know this and my mind, my mind is being blown. So next question. So you clearly did so much research over the summer, but like, how did you pack it all into this paper and also this presentation that you gave to people like this past May like like how did you translate all of that information into your paper and presentation especially for the presentation like you had to make it digestible to the general PA community like how did you do that a lot of hair pulling a lot of post-it notes um <laughs> A lot of like just sitting at my desk and feeling like a conspiracy theorist. Um, at one point, I was like drawing lines between post-it notes, and I was like, "I'm making connections." I promise. <laughs> but um, 
so yeah I have a pretty like i at Andover I think you develop a pretty personalized research process um and so that really really came in handy um but when I was writing this paper I had an amazing um advisor Mr. Prescott who um I would just like be able to sit down with and we would just like talk on the phone and we'd talk about like my findings, my research. And he'd be like, okay, so it sounds to me that like you have these categories of research. Um, and then you went through like this research process. So like, here's this timeline and then here are like these categories within the timeline. So I kind of started building off of that. Um, and I took a lot of the conclusions I had and I started looking at how they fit into like a bigger concept and a bigger paper. And unfortunately, some of the findings that like I did have, I couldn't fit into the paper, um, but it's okay because they're kind of erroneous anyways. But I basically wanted to try something with my um, paper that was more narrative-like. So it didn't just read as like, uh, like a research paper because I read so many of them over the summer and I was like if I have to write one that is like data forward I will go insane mm -hmm. so I tried to incorporate a lot of like the speeches that I read and like the language that I noticed um and making it more like readable and more accessible than like a research paper usually would be um and then I think with a presentation, I really appreciated the process of making the presentation because I think like I had been so like boxed in into like the format of my research paper. Um, and then when the staff was like, you need to make this information accessible and it can't be a four hour long lecture. Right. It really forced me to rethink about like the information I had on my paper and like better ways to organize it. And so that kind of like really pushed me to think about my research in a different light, which I think was really, really helpful, not just in making a presentation, but also in like my self-reflection about my research and kind of like thinking about information in a different way. And a part of your presentation that you gave, you did an activity where you split people into these three groups and you showed excerpts from presidential campaign speeches and you asked each group to find examples of affirmations of personal faith, religious narratives, and an idealized past. So can you talk a little bit about each of these categories and why you sort of thought these particular themes were important to look out for? Yeah, so... Um... I think these three categories um, were like the like best encapsulated kind of the three separate sections of my research paper. Um, the first like affirmations of personal faith. Again, like as we've already talked about in this presentation, I noticed that in order to prove their Americanness and their morality, people of color, women, Buttigieg, who was like the only um, openly gay candidate we have so far, they all had to like talk about their affirmation like affirm their faith so much more than like all the other white men in the field and so that I think was like my biggest like whoa moment of my research process because 
I expected most of them, most of the marginalized candidates are Democratic candidates. And I expected um, Republican candidates to use like tons more religious language than Democratic candidates. Um, and I was like absolutely shocked when that wasn't the case. And so that was like the biggest, I think, like personally, like whoa moment I had in my entire research process. And so that activity, I think, really well kind of demonstrated the differences in which these um, candidates used religious language. Like for more context, I essentially showed um, like four or five speeches in my presentation, um, each of like a different demographic. So like Barack Obama, who is black, um, Elizabeth Warren, who is a woman, Pete Buttigieg, who is gay. And then I like had people um, look at the types of religious language they could see. And so I think that activity kind of brought forth a little bit more of like how they all use religious language, just very different types and in very different ways. And then the second um, category was religious narratives. And we already talked about this on the podcast too, but like the American idea, the idea of America is very much rooted in a Protestant religious narrative. So part of my research, I read a lot of stuff by Bruce Lincoln, who talks about American mythology, um, and that the American identity is constructed by a series of stories that we tell ourselves. And my argument in the paper was that, like, these stories are founded by, like, a Protestant history and a Protestant instinct in the American psyche. And then the third category of language of an idealized past is essentially nostalgic language. Um, and this is the, this was like the like second half of my research paper almost, um, where I talk about American, modern American politics and the politics of nostalgia, um, especially religious nostalgia in this country. And what I wanted people to notice in that activity was that the two white men in the um, activity used more nostalgic language than the other people that I showed in the activity. So that like white men and Republicans specifically tend to use a lot of nostalgic language. So when you think about Donald Trump, um, his slogan is make America great again. Um, when Joe Biden is talking about his campaign, he outlines three principles. One is to restore the soul of America. Two is to rebuild the infrastructure of America. And the third one is to unite America. Well, like two of the three uniting principles of his campaign is like nostalgic language. Um, so I kind of explored a little bit more about like what it means to be nostalgic um, and what it means in a religious concept. And that kind of goes along with the idealized past. Like why, why are people so caught up with restorative nostalgia like what exactly are they being nostalgic of I think there is nostalgia is something that is like really like appealing to just like everyone like I considered myself to be like a pretty radically progressive person but like I still am very much swept away by nostalgia in my everyday life um like I didn't get senior spring, which is a bummer at Andover, um, because for those of you who don't go to our school, um, it's supposed to be like the best time of your Andover career. And so I like 
was super bummed out and like I was thinking about it and I was like I would do anything to like get it back and that's like nostalgia speaking it's um because when we experience nostalgia we are reminiscing on a loss and we're essentially saying that like we will do anything in order to go back and restore the thing that we have now lost um and so nostalgia as like a general feeling is really 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 powerful and so when combine that with politics things start becoming like pretty dangerous because when we think about nostalgia what we fail to do is recognize the problems in the um this like the time that we're trying to return to so like even though i'm like i will do anything to go back to andover right now i like fail to recognize that like andover has its own problems and there are like a lot of perks and like being at home right now and i'm very privileged to be able to say that like quarantine hasn't been like devastating to me and so like when we when we get swept away by nostalgia we get very very closed-minded um which is i think what we see a lot in trump's campaign but to answer the question of like what are we trying to return to i think nostalgia is something that is like very very deeply religious so um mercea eliad he talks about this concept of nostalgia and he essentially says that um it matches up with the edenic edenic narrative that we have um i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right <laughs> but like a desire to return to eden um so if you got for y'all who aren't familiar with the story the there's like adam and eve in paradise um and then eve eats the apple from the tree of knowledge and then um adam does too and then man falls from paradise and so he compares this idea of the sort of restorative nostalgia to this desire to return to paradise um which is like not something that i think like if you go up to like a like a random christian in america they won't be like make america trump again because we want to like go back to the garden of paradise like no that's not what they would say but it's the same instinct um and it's the same like kind of reminiscence um and so i think when trump is saying make america great again he is very much alluding to and tapping into like the fear that white americans have of like immigration of um america like like white demographics shrinking in america like it is a proven fact i think like don't quote me on this but i think there's been studies done that says like by the year 2030 like white americans won't be the biggest or it won't be won't be like the majority um demographic in our country anymore um which is like i think very deeply terrifying to a lot of people in this country and so he it very much is tapping into that joe biden um does the same thing but he is referring to kind of like an america before trump the way i like to describe joe biden's campaign is make america 2012 again um which is like i think um the way i see political nostalgia is like it's very appealing it's very convincing but there are much better ways to kind of make your pitch for campaigning without referring to like a desire to return to a certain past and another big part of your research and you kind of went into this earlier but 
yeah, part of your research that I found particularly fascinating was when you talked about these general trends that you found in presidential candidates, like showing how much they affirm their personal faith in their speeches. And like you said, you found that candidates of color, for example, affirm their faith three times more than straight white males. And females affirm their faith almost four times more than straight white males. And you gave other statistics as well. And I guess at first, when I first saw these trends, I was kind of taken aback. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, this isn't actually that surprising because it's just showing that minorities feel like they have to show their Americanness even more to prove something to to white America, which which makes sense to me now. So I guess, do you have anything else you want to touch on um, regarding these trends? And also, I was also thinking about people who identify as LGBTQ, because you also talked about um, people who identify as part of that community and how they also have to feel like they have to affirm their personal faith and sort of tout this American God. And when you were giving that presentation, I was thinking a lot about that because I'm just thinking about like the people I know, for example, who are queer and have faced so much trauma from their church and their religion and just faced abuse and backlash and ostracization. And so, yeah, like, do you have any thoughts about all of this? And do you feel like it's, it may be easier for those people to maybe suppress that feeling of trauma and still tout this God because it's not necessarily, not necessarily a religious figure, but rather this American figure? Um, kind of. I think it like also depends person to person. Uh, first to like answer your question about um, like LGBT individuals, like, like having this like identity and like basically like in a way being pressured in order like to like as you said like tout this like faith um that does like very much traumatize the community that they like represent and they belong in um but I think like two parts to this first is like Pete Buttigieg who is unfortunately our only data point in this scenario has like yes, talks about religion and, like, refers to this American God um, and talks about his own religious faith a lot, partially because it is politically necessary, but also there, he has said words about, like, how he reconciles his own faith with his identity as being a gay man, Um, and he talks about how religious language isn't just something that is inherently oppressive, but also something that is incredibly liberating for him as a gay man who also identifies as Christian. Again, like, if he were a gay atheist man, he would not have seen the same success that he saw as a gay Christian man. But also, um, I don't think Christianity is something that is inherently um, homophobic. I think that is something that, like, has fed like Christianity as a homophobic religion or like homophobic practices in Christian faith is something that like has a lot of other cultural contexts that feed into like these practices that are incredibly harmful and incredibly traumatizing. But also I think that if you look at like original Hebrew, um, original Hebrew Bible and nowhere in the Bible is it like 
explicitly said that like being gay is being a sin. There are tons of different interpretations of the Bible that actually say that like any time like the story of Babylon, um, it's not because like being gay brought Babylon down. Like there's a ton of different like uh, um, stories and ways that we can read the stories that are actually like not homophobic at all. And so I think like if you are a Christian, like there are if you are gay like there are tons of ways that you can reconcile like your christian faith with your identity as being a gay person and so um in a way Pete Buttigieg says that when he is using religious language when he is affirming his own faith he's actually reclaiming his faith in a way and saying that no like i can be christian just because i'm gay doesn't mean that you can bar me from being christian and so I think, like, in a way that is very, very empowering to some people and, like, is a very valid tool in which a lot of people in this country and around the world can really, um, like, seek to, like, affirm their identity, being like, no, I'm not going to let a bunch of, like, homophobic white men dictate whether or not I can be Christian. Like, I can do this. I can be Christian and still be gay. Like, that is totally okay. Um, and so I think that was like very, very, like very empowering, even as someone who's like is not Christian and is not gay. Like I like I think that is something like the the like reclaiming something that looks irreconcilable. I don't know if that's a word. Um, <laughs> yeah, whoever. Like, like I think that is like um, there is like, a deeper narrative that we can all draw empowerment from there. But also, like, going back to, like, affirmations of personal faith, um, I think Obama best exemplifies this. I can, like, talk about, like, affirming faith and, like, marginalized identity, like, for however long. But I think, like, the best way that we can wrap our heads around this is really looking at, like, the birtherism um, scandal that really haunted Obama as in, in his entire candidacy. Um, because Obama is black, because because Obama has like a foreign sounding name, he can't possibly be Christian. Um, and so like, even though he is like a very, very Protestant man, and he talks about his Protestant faith in every single speech he gives, um, Obama's faith is constantly being questioned because he is black. So people um, assume that because he is black, he is foreign. And because he is foreign, he can't possibly be Protestant. Ergo, he has to be Muslim. Um, and so like this very racialized way of conflating the American identity with whiteness and with Protestantism, um, I think is like really, really clear um, when we like start thinking about the way that Obama had to navigate his campaigns and his presidency and like kind of wrap this entire thing like wrap this idea up and going back to like the identity of being like an LGBTQ plus person and being Christian, like the conflation of Christianity with like what we see as the prime American person is something that like, I think seeps into the way that we not only talk about like people being oppressed by Christianity, but also like limits the way that we are able to see um, the ways in which we can find liberation through reclaiming these types of faiths. So not only is um, are people like Obama being like 
oppressed because we conflate Christianity um, with moralness, by doing so, we are also like kind of confining the ways in which communities like the LGBTQ plus community are able to find liberation by reclaiming their Christian faith. If that makes sense. I don't know that if um, what I was saying totally came through. No, yeah. So the idea is there in my brain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a big concept, so yeah. it's, it's it's hard. But yeah, yeah. I just I don't know. It just saddens me in a sense that. Well, I guess on one hand, I'm like, okay, since this God that people are referring to may not necessarily be a Protestant God, but this American figure or this American idea, like maybe it's not that bad, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know. It just, it just saddens me in a sense that like people have to sort of their own identity in order to absolutely impart that idea and, and, and demonstrate and prove something to people I guess yeah like it's definitely very confining in the way that like you're able to enter politics like I think like the one thing that I like really was like thinking about after this research was like damn you know what this means this means that like we we're not going to be able to see a Muslim woman in color in pres like as president for a very 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 long time in this country. Like, if you were to be president, you're going to have to be a straight white man, or you're going to have to be Protestant. Like, that really limits the amount of people that we can like represent in this country. Um, obviously, I don't think that's like how things should be. I don't think that's how things are going to be forever. But I think that realization really like hit hard um, because I was like, I'm never going to be, I won't be able to see someone who looks like me, who believes in the same things as me um, in the office of president for probably my lifetime. Um, and I think that like, in a way that before the president, before this research, I was like, ah, like, maybe we'll get like an, like an agnostic, like, Asian woman and president one day <laughs> but like we probably are not and um that's like it definitely is very saddening to think about but that doesn't mean people shouldn't try people oh no, no definitely not definitely not this just means we have to go harder yes yes start the revolution sooner <laughs> yes exactly so karen next question um so let's talk about the two presidential candidates right now donald trump and joe biden uh, yes so are, are there very old very white very straight men yes correct all all of those uh, identity markers are correct <laughs> so are there particular things you observed slash noticed about them and their speeches um relating to religious language and any things that they're doing um, that has a that have like a particularly strong appeal to Americans? Yeah. So um, 
let's start okay first off i think we've already talked about this but both are very nostalgic presidential candidates um or at least like the language they use are very very nostalgic they are constantly referring to the past um they like refer to our founders a lot too um which i think is something very interesting but starting with joe biden joe biden is catholic and so he uses religious language in a very interesting way and that he uses a lot of it, just never overt religious language. So he refers to like the soul of our nation, which is religious language, but it's like very ambiguous religious language. Um, and he'll draw on religious narratives without making it sound like a religious narrative. And so he does this thing where he like tiptoes around a lot of overt religious language without like really committing to it. And that is because, partially because he is Catholic. Um, he doesn't want to draw attention to his own Catholic faith. Um, and there's like a poll recently released by Pew Research Center that said that 39% of Americans don't think that Joe Biden is very religious. Um, and that's very, very intentional on his part because it is not politically sustainable for him to be an overtly Catholic man running for president. And so he like will use a lot of religious language, but a lot of covert religious language. Whereas Donald Trump uses a ton of religious language, but always in a very like, he never affirms his own religious faith. Um, actually, like he does, he talks about being Presbyterian, um, but he doesn't do it very often, very regularly. He appeals to Christian audiences a lot because like a huge part of his base are like white evangelical Christians. Um, and I think because he has that base, he uses a lot of religious apocalyptic language, which I think is absolutely fascinating. So I've recently become like completely enamored with this idea of like apocalypticism. Um, maybe it's because we are literally in the middle of a global pandemic right now. <laughs> but um, the a huge, a huge part of this white evangelical uh, basis faith is like belief in like upcoming apocalypse. And so he uses a lot of language like referring to like Armageddon or referring to Judgment Day. Um, and actually there's a very interesting political science theory that is kind of floating around in academia that says that Ted Cruz, who is an actual evangelical, um, started losing his evangelical support to Donald Trump because Donald Trump gave like a speech, like really, really like staunchly in support of Israel. And the rebuilding of Israel is uh, a part of the evangelical belief that when we like reclaim, we when Jew Jewish people return to Israel, um, that will actually spark the apocalypse, um, which is, I think, really cool to think about when we also look at like the language that Donald Trump uses. Um, and then combining the apocalyptic language with nostalgia really gives like, it's like, it, it's a really huge sticking point among some evangelical communities because it's very much alluding to like 
some sort of like upcoming return of Jesus Christ, um, which again is like a very niche um, community to be appealing to, but that's also a community that really builds the foundation of Trump's political base. So after all of this research and work you've done, how do you feel like maybe on an individual basis, but also just in the American political scene, like how can we be more inclusive of people of other religions? And also, what do you have to say to a young Buddhist, a young Muslim, a young agnostic, a young Jew out there, like who is interested in pursuing politics? What advice do you have to give? Reclaim your faith openly. Like, I just, or like, reclaim your lack of faith openly. Like, whatever you believe in. Um, I think a lot of the biases we have in this country, like biases in favor of Protestantism, is really, really unconscious. Like, again, going back to the crime, our conscious association with church going and um, being a good person is like something that we don't think about. Um, And so I think like when a candidate like Joe Biden is using covert religious language instead of overtly declaring his religious faith, he is kind of playing by the rules of the game instead of redefining them. Um, I think one, if you are a like, if you are like a agnostic like me trying to like run for president, I would like very openly do it. Like say that like, yes, I am agnostic, but then reconcile that identity with being like a good person or being a good American because it like definitely is. I think you will see a lot of support behind you. I think like the reason why these biases are able to survive in the political field is because we don't address them. Like we let people leverage Protestantism as their sticking point of morality way too often in this country. And like, yes, if you are like Muslim and you go out and you run for president and you reclaim your Muslim faith in front of the entire country, it'd be incredibly empowering for some people. But it also like probably means that you might not win your presidency. Um, I really hope you do, but like, it probably means that you won't, but like individually that will be like a huge setback, but also for the trajectory of the nation, if we want our nation to get to a point in which we are inclusive of all faith, it requires that public figures of different faiths go up in front of the country and reclaim their own faiths very, very overtly and very, very proudly. Without that foundation of activism, we like won't be able to get to a point in which we have um, like a Muslim woman of color as president. Um, we will forever and always have straight white men or people like Barack Obama who face a ton of like criticization for not being religious enough um, and being forced to like reaffirm his Protestantism all the time. The unfortunate fact is, without doing that work, we won't be able to get to the place where we are. 
But also, if you are somebody who has tons of like political ambitions and like isn't Protestant, like it is also not your burden to go out there and do this, right? Like if you want to have a political, like a successful political career, like go for it, like all power to you. But also like we need a mixture of both in this country, people who are willing to chase their political ambitions to no end, but also people who are willing to like kind of put a damper on their political ambitions in order to build this foundation of activism for people in the future. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so Karen, that is the end of all of the questions that I've prepared. And I know we've had a super long and intense and amazing conversation. Aww, but before you go, I want to ask you some rapid fire questions Ooh. so listeners can get to know you a little better in a more fun context. So are you ready for your rapid fire questions? Yes, I'm weirdly nervous. Is that weird? <laughs> no need to be nervous. These are fun. <laughs> I can't tell if I'm sweating because like I'm in Houston or like I'm just scared. <laughs> no need to be scared. You're going to do great. So first question. What's the favorite class you've taken at Andover? Religion in America with Mr. Prescott. I just have to say that because it's just like, oh, it's such a special place in my heart. What is a pet peeve of yours? Okay, you know when bathroom doors don't shut? Like the locks of bathroom doors don't fit into like the actual like hole in the lock. Mm -hmm. Like what is the point of having a bathroom stall if like you can't close it? That is just because we'll you'll see like eight bathroom stalls in a bathroom, but people can only use like two of them because like they're the only two that like has a lock that actually fits. You lose six perfectly good stalls because you can't design a lock. Like I can't say I've thought about this a lot, but I have. You have you have clearly. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Next question. If you were stranded on an island and could only take one book what would it be and why? Oh man. Okay. I am taking, I'm currently taking class on The Handmaid's Tale. Can mm. I cheat and say a series? Go for it. I mean, I guess that's different. Um, <laughs> if I had to choose a series, it'd be like the entire Percy Jackson series because I just love them. But also if I had to choose like a limited series or just like a single book, it'd probably be The Handmaid's Tale. I think just like it's one of those books that like no matter how many times you read it you always notice something new mm. and so I feel like it's something that like I wouldn't get bored of yeah I finished that one recently and I'm like I have it's to so read this again <laughs> so good also just like her voice the voice in the book is just so beautifully constructed mm. and last question what was your favorite memory from this entire CAMD process? Um, I think sitting down, um, like for our very first meeting as CAMD scholars, I remember after we got the email that we like got admitted into the program, like all six of us got dinner with the staff who's the head of the program and our advisors. And like, I think everyone in the program were people like, I just, had really looked up to like my entire time at Andover is being like these people are like crazy they're so smart they're so cool they're so driven um 
And so being able to like be at that table and like look at my peers and be like, I get to work with these incredible people for like the next few months of my life. Um, I think like that moment, I really was hit by like how much of a privilege and uh, this process, like this process was and how like excited I was to like really get to like completely spend an entire summer reading about like this one really niche thing that like I am absolutely obsessed with while also being able to like contact and um, like get support from like these incredible academics that I just like, I, I can't put into words like how much of an honor it like really was. And I think that moment, it really, really sunk in. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, you guys seem, you guys were like a really good cohort. I'm so proud of all of you guys. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wish I could do it again, but alas, that's restorative nostalgia speaking. <laughs> it all, it, it's all full circle. It's full circle, I'm telling you. So Karen, that is the end of our episode, but thank you so much for coming on. Every time I talk to you, I have so much fun. I laugh so much. Um, and it's just so cool. Like, you're just so cool. And you honestly, like, embrace abstractness and you like that, that it's just so cool like re- restorative nostalgia no problem religion no problem like yeah thank I you and thank also you. you know that I idolize you you already know that you know that I think you're like the coolest human on earth Aww. that goes without saying but I feel like I had to say that for like everyone listening oh my god I like just totally forgot that we were recording a podcast up until that <laughs> I thought you were just like letting me speak about religion for like another two hours. <laughs> Karen, before you go, any last things you want to mention? Also, where can people find you or maybe your presentation and paper if they want to reach out to you about your research? Of course. So um, if you are an Andover student listening to this, my presentation is available via Mediaspace, um, which is free. If you are interested in my paper or interested in research or you want to listen to my presentation or you just want to talk about religion, obviously I'm super happy to do that. Um, just direct message me on Instagram. My handle is Karen Y. Sun and I will get back to you. And if you want, we can just have a forever long, four hour long conversation about um, restorative nostalgia. <laughs> I'm so happy to do that. Karen, thank you so much for coming on to this episode. Um, and once again, total pleasure having you on. Um, if you ever want to come back, just let me know. <laughs> I'm just saying, this is your prerogative, Angelina. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Angel Rena here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Homecoming. I first of all want to apologize for the audio quality of this episode. It was a bit iffy and I definitely tried my best to improve the quality as much as possible. And I also wanted to give a huge shout out to Ralph Lamb for helping to edit this episode. Definitely couldn't have done it without him. But I hope the quality didn't detract from uh, the content of this episode. Definitely feel free to reach out to Karen if you're interested in discussing religion or any topics that she covered in this episode because they're incredibly relevant and important. Um, And on that note, 
make sure you register to vote or apply for your absentee ballots because there are a ton of state primaries that are happening right now and the presidential election is also coming up. So please make sure to visit your state's voter registration slash election website so you don't miss a deadline and every vote seriously counts. And also make sure to listen to the two previous episodes of the Camdy Scholars series if you want to learn more about the amazing work that other Camdy Scholars have pursued. But next week, Avik Sarkar is joining me on the podcast to talk about queerness, what it's like to be a South Asian queer person, and LGBTQ advocacy. So definitely look forward to that, and I will see you all next week. Bye! Thank you.